Welcome back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Jake Friedman. And I'm Brendan Hansen. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. And today is a deep dive episode in which we're looking at the Press Your Luck set collection card game, Coloretto. And yes, you might be asking yourself, Jake and Brendan, how are you going to dedicate an hour long podcast to covering Coloretto? And the answer is, we really like this game and we've done it in the past with things like Sushi Go. And I think there's a lot to discuss about why a game like this works and creates an interesting decision space that will lead to a rich and interesting conversation. We'll also talk about Zularetto, a follow-up game in the back half of the show. Jake, I see we have some housekeeping though before we dive into our actual ratings and reviews. That's right, Brendan. So before we get too far along into our deep dive, Let's do some housekeeping. First, we just want to say that this episode is sponsored by our patrons on our Patreon. And we are celebrating that we just achieved our 25 patron goal. That is amazing. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. And what that means is that Brendan and I are both going to do a video tour of our board game collections. And we'll be posting that up to our Patreon feed if you're interested in perusing that and all the other benefits that come with being a patron of this show. You can check that out there at decisionspace.com slash Patreon. And we have set our next goal for 30 patrons. Once we do that, there will be another bonus episode coming out on whatever the patrons decide they want it to be on. And then that will go into our general podcasting feed for everyone. Also want to note for all of our pre-planners out there that the games that Jake and I have set to cover coming up are Barrage, which we mentioned, a really heavy Euro game about production of energy and water. Messina 1347, Vladimir Sushi game about the plague. But no, it's it's exciting. It's a worker movement game. So Jake and I are going to be delving into that. We're excited to cover that on the show, having previously covered Underwater Cities and Praga Kaput Regni from the same designer. And then we also are planning on covering The Resistance Ooh. slash Resistance Avalon on the show. And we hope to have a very special guest joining us for that episode. So look forward to that and maybe get those Resistance groups together. Uh, if, if like me, it's been a while since you've revisited that excellent game and kind of game system. Yes, we just want to give you all a lot of advance notice on those. And I will say we probably talk about some of the Avalon inclusions in the episode as well, the Merlin role and that sort of thing. So something to keep in mind if you're pre-planning. And Jake, what's this final note? What, what's a golden geek? Yeah, last thing, we are going to throw our hat in the ring to try and get nominated for a Golden Geek. I think that is something that would be tremendously helpful for our podcast. As of this recording, the Golden Geek nomination process over on BoardGameGeek.com is not yet open, but we think that it was very likely to open in the month of February. Maybe by the time you're even listening to this podcast, there will be an announcement for it. So this is coming from my background in campaign organizing and, and uh, politics, which I know that if people have a plan to vote, they are much more likely to vote. So we're asking you now to make a plan. Please vote for Decision Space. And that would be an excellent way for that you could help us out if you are so inclined. So that's a whole lot of housekeeping. Sorry about that. And let's get right on with the show. 
with our ratings and slogans for Coloretto. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick us off, Jake. I'm going to keep it short and simple, just like the game. A near-perfect realization of the game it's trying to be, Coloretto is equal parts joyful, interesting, and zany. 9 out of 10. Very good. And I have turned over a new leaf last week. I think something like 3,200 people downloaded an episode of Decision Space in one week. And I thought to myself, Jake, if that many people are downloading your podcast, you can prepare a slogan ahead of time. So I did. And here it is. I've always been fond of chameleons. I have a memory as a kid of going to the library with my dad and picking out a children's educational video about chameleons. Despite this fondness, I'm going to try not to let this bias color my review. Coloretto is a delightful, fun, funny, and sometimes challenging little piece of design brilliance. It is a distillation of less is more in a board game. And yes, that is elegant. No matter whether that elegant style comes in blue, yellow, orange, brown, pink, green, gray, or wild. Nine out of ten. It's a nine out of ten sweep on Decision Space. Woo! That was awesome. <laughs> and Jake, what a what a great review. Is this what it feels like being on the other side of the mic? I'm I'm very impressed. Yeah, but don't don't sweat it, Brendan. I think you did a really admirable try. I guess you're just probably going off the cuff, whatever. It's fine. It's too bad uh, faces don't translate <laughs> through podcasts because I wish y'all could have seen the look I just gave Jake. Let's get into the game background. So this is a bit of an older game. It came out in 2003 by Rio Grande and others uh, in the publishing space. But you know, Rio Grande is the name it says on the box. In, in the edition that we've been playing over on Board Game Arena. It is designed by Michael Schott, who also, I apologize if I'm not pronouncing that right, who also designed Web of Power, which has been re-implemented as China and Iwari. Jake, China. No. China. <laughs> I can't let that one fly. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> we get roasted for not knowing where Macau is. And then <laughs> you say China. <laughs> Are we going to leave this in? It's too good. Yeah, this game, it goes from being called Web of Power. It was released in 2000. Then it got re-released as China. And then it became Awari in 2019. <laughs> I'm retiring. for yourself. I feel I need to apologize to everybody <laughs> in the world. Oh, my God. I can't believe that. In my defense, your notes are crazy misleading, okay? <laughs> How? It says C-H-I-N-A. Yeah, I guess it's in brackets, ca- comma, Awari. Oh, boy. Anyway, so okay. there are other games, right, too? Brendan, please keep going. Web of Power, very popular, really well-regarded game that got re-released. Then in 2007, most notably, Michael uh, also did Zularetto, which we're going to talk about on the show as a follow-up to Coloretto, which was at the time, I think, his most well-known game, probably. Uh, And then that itself was followed up with a game called Aquaretto, with a nice dolphin on the cover, kind of like, you know, Flipper. Um, Very very cool cover. (laughs) Brendan stared at me ahead of time. It's 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 worth Googling. Yeah, definitely a different time in board games. 
but I think I just wanted to mention those games because one, we're going to be talking about Zuloretto, but two, to just show the impact that Coloretto had. And then finally, I want to note that Michael Schott also did Lucky Numbers in 2012. This is a game that I didn't know a ton about, but Jake and I, as many listeners may know, are big fans of using Board Game Arena. We play a lot of games there, and Lucky Numbers is a very popular game on Board Game Arena. It's super light. It's not one I've actually played myself, but I know it has a big following, so I thought it deserved a shout out. You've seen Lucky Numbers there? Also a Michael Schott game. We should maybe check it out, give it a play, um, and see if we like it. Brendan, I have a question for you at the uh, potential risk of sounding even more like an idiot, but I'm just, what is a reto? I, you know, Jake, that's a really good question. I don't know what a reto is. You, <laughs> I think, you know, yeah, I, I, I literally don't know. Is it Oretto? Is it Oretto? I honestly, I, I don't know. I think it's just Googling a naming convention Reto? that they came up with it, with it for their, for their game. Reto is Italian adjective that can mean archaic figuratively upright literally mm. arc so i don't know what is the meaning of reto oh adjective righteous living a good moral life mm. i don't know Doesn't i don't really think we fit. cracked the code there yeah <laughs> all right if you know tell us on the discord okay before any more blenders take place let's get right over into brendan's rules overview where he'll give you a better idea of how to play this game and i've got a feeling it's not going to be a long one Colorado is a set collection push-your-luck-style card game for 3-5 to five players. Its deck is made up of 63 color cards, 9 cards of 7 different colors, for example, 9 yellow cards, 9 green cards, 9 red cards, etc. And these are the primary cards players are collecting. It also has 10 plus 2 cards, which give a flat 2 points at the end of the game, 1 last round card, which when it's revealed signals that it's the last round of the game, and 3 wild cards, which count as any one color of the player's choice during scoring. In Colorado, players score an increasing number of points for each card they collect in a color. For example, the first yellow card a player takes nets them one point, the next two, the next yellow card three, the fourth yellow card they take grants them four points, the fifth yellow card they get would grant them five additional points, and so on. Meaning the more cards a player has of a color, the more they want of that color going forward. However, that's not totally true, because at the end of the game, players only score positive points for the three largest sets of cards, and they lose points for all their remaining sets, meaning they have to be careful and tactful about how they collect cards, ensuring that they only collect large sets in colors of the sets that they'll have the three largest sets of. And here's how the core loop of Colorado works. At the start of each player's turn, they face a simple choice. Draw and place a card from the deck, or take a row of cards. If they choose to draw and place a card, they take a card from the deck, reveal it, and place it on one of the available rows on the table. Rows that haven't yet been taken in a round, or have fewer than three cards in them, are viable to place into. After doing so, play proceeds to the next player in a clockwise manner, and they yet again face a simple choice. Draw a card and place it into a row, or to take a row. If a player takes a row, they'll add all the cards in a single row on the table to their collection, and are out for the remainder of the round. That means they won't place any more cards, and they won't take any more cards. Play proceeds this way in a given round, until every player has taken at least one row, at which point a new round begins, and play proceeds this way 
round by round until that last round card is revealed, the 15th bottom card in the deck, at which point the final round is finished and the player with the most points is crowned the victor. Thank you, Brendan, for taking the time to record that rules overview. So we jump right into it and explore the decision space in Coloretto, the most basic of all the Retto games. I would love to. Jake, size, depth, feel, clarity. We get to do it. It's been it feels like it's been ages since we've done a deep dive in this way and maybe hit on some of these questions. But I would say this is a small box card game, and I think the decision space is really meaningfully constrained by the whole game being structured around this really simple question. Do you want to draw a card and add it to a row or do you want to take a row? So it feels like not a massive decision space, right? There's not a lot of uh, tools of agency, agency that we have to interact with the game. But even then, all of the decisions to me feel quite meaningful but you don't always have a lot of agency when you're making those decisions because it's all based on the input randomness or whatever card you might draw from the top of the deck. So a lot of color Colorado to me is this feel of doing the best with the hand I'm dealt, right? It has that really classic card game feel, even though there's not actually a hand of cards being dealt to you. You're just always picking them up off the table. Yeah. I mean, I think that is a great way to characterize the decision space. I, to kind of go into the type of the decision space, my sense is that the spirit of this game, the core of the game, is actually a waning decision space. Uh, do you agree with that? Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I think yeah. so much of this game is it's that typical type of waning thing where you're trying to keep your decisions as open as possible for as long as possible, but there's an inflection point, and that point is, once you've committed to three colors, then you're just the whole game is totally shifted and you're just trying to avoid colors at all costs. And you have flexibility up until you have committed to three different colors. And there's a little wiggle room, right? Like I'm, I might be okay with going into a fourth or fifth or sixth color if it's just for one card, but I'm trying to stay off of colors for the most part just because of that scoring. So it very much feels like a winning decision space game. And in terms of the fact that in the beginning, there's lots of possibilities. And towards the end of the game, it's really so much more about trying to avoid taking penalties. Yeah. And I think the core of the sort of actions you're doing, even though it is a very static mm. sort of mechanism, right, where you're either take a card or take a hop each <laughs> We're going to call them hops. Why wouldn't we call them hops? Okay, great. We'll call them hops. <laughs> what, what would you call them? Rose. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> I thought you told me that they're called hops. No, that's what that's what Board Game Garage calls them. That's what Kellen calls them. This is, this is their whole joke. That, that whole joke where hop is a made-up word. So then so you call them hops, but a, hop, a hopper is a thing that loads things into things. But these are the rule book just calls them rows, which feels perfectly sufficient to me. What the heck? Yeah. Today I learned. Geez, that's so funny, <laughs> actually, because I've been working on this little tiny board game design myself and I was calling them hops in the rules because I thought that was like a board game term because you told me they're called hops. You can thank Helen for that of the Board Game Barrage podcast. And if you are a listener of our show who hasn't checked out Board Game Barrage, uh, Jake and I both really rec recommend that show. Anyway, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. So even though the static 
action selection mechanism of taking adding a card to a row or taking a row is static it exists it actually even therein funnels you down to eventually somebody will be the last person in the game and then at that or in a round and at that point their action choices do wane down to zero eventually within any given round yeah that's so interesting jake both the the sort of mirroring of the overall arc of the game being waning in terms of what colors you're pursuing but then also every given round itself is literally waning as you have a set number of spots that could be filled with cards in that round but as soon as there's three cards in every row players no longer can take right like the opportunity for flexibility has been snatched up and i think you really feel that in terms of when you're placing cards early on it does feel really open and you have like and you have lots of flexibility in terms of the decisions you can make of where your cards go and later on it's so much more you're just hoping you draw a specific color card or you're hoping you don't uh when you maybe take a risk to draw a card and stay in the round a little bit longer and in addition to that the actual scoring mechanism right you mentioned the fact that I mean, so much of this game really hinges on that scoring mechanism of only scoring three suits as positive and the rest being negative points, but also just in the limited number of cards, right? If I'm collecting brown Mm. and so is Brendan, or even if Brendan is accidentally forced to take a brown card, right? That is one fewer brown card remaining in the deck for me to possibly get up to the maximum score of 21 for a set of six cards so i think it opportunities feel like waning and kind of pulled away from you there too if you're playing that card counting game as well because there's just nine cards of each color in the deck exactly so really both of you can't get to the six if you're if two of you are in a color and yeah let's hope three of you at the table don't end up trying to collect the same color because that's just a train wreck waiting to happen interesting yeah jake Let's talk about that triangular scoring because I feel like that's, like you said, it's so important to this game. In some ways, this is the preeminent example in my mind of a mechanism that makes, quote unquote, the game. We did that episode on that a while back. And I think that this is the perfect example of that because without the triangular scoring in this game, paired with the fact that you get negative points for every set that's not one of your top three largest, um, this game doesn't really pop or have interesting decisions. It's so much because of the scoring mechanism that it works. So I just want to make sure everyone's really clear on what we mean by tri- triangular scoring. And that's this idea that the first card you get of a color gives you one point. The second card gives you two. The third card of a color gives you three. The fourth, four, and so on. So you're always getting one more point than the number of points you got for collecting the last one which if you map that out sort of in a row, it will visually look like a triangle, which is where the name triangular scoring comes from. And this is a mechanism that's been used in tons of board games. I think Colorado probably deserves a lot of uh, kudos for maybe popularizing this scoring convention. Sushi Go uses it. Ticket to Ride has some triangular scoring. The Castles of Burgundy uses it in some of its, um, in the way its location scoring work. So it's just sort of a bread and butter scoring mechanism because it's a really great way to create increasing incentive without having those incentives be so strong that they make the decision space irrelevant right if some if scoring was exponential all of a sudden by the time you get to the the third time you're doubling or the fourth it's just so many points that there'd be no reason to sort of 
not do that. Whereas mm-hmm. a little bit sometimes here, it's it's more complicated somewhat. And certainly more complicated by the fact that you can get negative points for getting too many cards yeah. of colors that you don't want. That's the, the linchpin. Right. And I love that for the negative scoring too, because taking one of another color is okay. Fine. I can I can take a minus one point. That's not gonna yeah. make or break me. But then as soon as you're adding a second or, you know, hopefully not a third in that color, it starts to feel, you know, devastating. And I think another interesting thing about the decisions that come into whether or not you want to take an offsuit card in the game. I think there are some, a bunch of interesting decisions around that early on, right? It might be advantageous to have five different cards of different mm. colors if you have one in each, just because that really keeps you open, right? You don't mm. necessarily want to just commit to the first three card colors you get because they're the first three you get because other people might be going into those. That could be okay. But the other interesting thing I think about the triangular scoring is that it really uh, changes based on the number of players in the game because if you are playing in like a five player game you all it's really difficult to say it's worth it to you to hate draft a color or whatever just to take it away from somebody else because that means you know you're getting harmed the person you're you know taking the card away from is getting harmed but the other three players are all benefiting so you would much rather somebody else sort of falls on that than yourself but if you're playing in a two player game which I think, I think is actually three, like a, a variant. It's three to five, isn't it? Oh, it's a variant. Okay. Yeah, you can play in. There is a two-player version of the game. <clears throat> That's a variant. But it's supported on Board Game Arena too, so I've tried it out a bit. Okay. And that works a little bit differently. I don't know if I should explain kind of the differences, but it's essentially like you can only have a row that one row can only hold one card, one row can only hold two cards, and row three can only hold can hold up to three cards. And then once two rows are gone, that's the end of the round. It's actually really fun mm. and interesting. But if you're playing in a two-player game, right, and somebody has four brown cards, that's worth, you know, what, six points to them to take. But for you to take it, it's worth minus one. So that's a net gain of five points. And that same right. sort of logic applies in a three-player game, right, where it's, it's hate drafting is much more beneficial uh, than in higher player count games. So I, I do think it's sort of interesting the way that the scoring changes the feel of the game as you go up in the player count. Yeah, totally. And what sort of tools you have to to approach um, trying to catch up and staying open, which is so important in drafting games. We always talk about sort of how the the deep importance of staying open. And that's tough in Colorado because it's asking you to walk that really fine line. Just while we're talking about it, Jake, I feel like now is maybe the moment to say that my favorite thing about this game is the fact that it it teases you into exploring your own hubris because you so much every time I play this game, oh, it's just one yellow. I'm fine taking one yellow. And then all of a sudden I have, you know, negative 12 points or something because I've collected three yellows. My math on that isn't perfect, but you get what I'm saying. And it's just, I don't know. It's just, it's very, very fun for me sort of seeing how that plays out. It's it's the kind of collection of mechanics, right? That, that just create such interesting and nuanced decisions out of such a simple rule set, right? Yeah. Like the choice of whether to draw an extra card, you know, draw and place or take is so often interesting, right? Because if you're presented with one card that you need, you can take that. It's only a gain for you. 
right? You have no drawback to doing that except for the potential to ha have an even greater benefit this round. And I think that's sort of the hubris, right? Of that's where the hubris gets into me. It's like, yeah, I could take that. That's worth three points for me and no negatives. But like, what if I am able to get even more points out of this round? And then that so often turns into like, okay, now I'm just taking like negative four. Why didn't yeah. I just take the plus three points? Totally. There's in, in optimization problems, Jake, there's this, um, this thing that you can do, which is you explore like, what's the value of perfect information? And I feel like Colorado is this perfect map onto that idea, right? Because the exact decision that we're talking about factors into this, where the board, let's say the round's just kind of starting every, maybe it's the second or third round. So every player has between three and, and nine cards in front of them, 10 cards, because you start with a card. And the exact scenario you just said, there's one or two cards out that will give you three points. And now from that position, the thing that makes Colorado work is there's so much potential uncertainty of what the range of points that you could score if you stay in the round are. So you're offered three points and the expected value of staying in is not, it's very difficult to calculate, right? Yeah. Like of because so little few changes are happening each round, when you pass, when it gets back to you, things could dramatically shift, right? So what is three points that you're being offered if a card that you really don't want gets put in that bucket, all of a sudden the three points that you could have just taken could have shifted to being negative six points for you or something. But at the same time, if everyone else takes, and let's say there's that one card that's just going to give you three points, and then you decide to push your luck and draw twice at the top and get two chameleons, two wilds, uh, excuse me, and those get added, all of a sudden you could potentially be scoring game end terms something absurd, like... 15 points in that round or something and that could just win you the game and i think that's why this game feels so exciting and why it feels so frustrating but you never get to have perfect information like there's no optimal decisions necessarily outside of the heuristic based decisions of it's probably better to take fewer risks when you're ahead and take more risks when you're behind to try to catch up and i think that that's really fun so from like the value of perfect information in this game feels like it would be very high to me because of the potential for such large swings, right? You would, you, you, you stand you to gain, you stand like, to gain a lot in a positive outcome scenario. This is a totally hypothetical thing. It could never mm -hmm. exist based on the way this game is played, right? But you stand to gain a lot if things go your way in Colorado and you stand to lose a lot if things don't go your way. So if hypothetically, right, you could know which way things were going to go. There's a lot of value in, in that that could be created compared to games where there's much a much smaller band. Right. Okay. I, I've kind of led us astray with like a concept that doesn't perfectly map, but yeah. I think is really interesting to think about here just because my thought is like, yeah, perfect information would be good in a lot of games. In all games. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, I think, but, I, I, but the, the point is, if you could, what I'm trying to say is it feels like it would be even more valuable here. Yeah. Because there's oftentimes scenarios on the board where you could get three points and that three points could either turn into negative negative eight points or positive 12 points, right? Yeah, and I think and that's just speaking to the fact that that kind of is the whole game here, yeah. right? Like we yeah. could take a different game like Castles of Burgundy and there's a little bit of, you know, like knowing what good tiles are going to come out and knowing what yeah. you're going to roll on your dice. That would be really helpful information, but there's still like, some other stuff going on that you could potentially 
you know, make better decisions or worse decisions than anyone else. Here, if you have perfect information, you're going to make perfect decisions every time because it's just simple, right? There's Yeah, right. You just take the most matching cards you can. Yeah, yeah. And so much of the game and the decisions are about how much risk can I afford to take or how much risk do I have to take based on my position within the game, right? So, yeah. And if you had perfect information, there's no risk. You can make a, a perfect decision. Yeah. Something else that kind of fits in with this that I think is interesting about Coloretto is the game end condition is a card. When there's a, a card that when it is flipped up, it will say, this is the last round. There'll be no more rounds after this one. And you finish that round and then it's over. And the yep. way setup works in Colorado is that card is always 15 from the bottom of the deck, which is an interesting way of doing things. Like when I was reading the rules, I was sort of assuming that it would be shuffled in to the bottom of the deck, yeah. right? That's how yep. you do it in Enchanted Plumes. And sure. often, I think that's probably a more common way of doing things. So players don't know exactly when the game is going to end or when it's the last round. But here, you can really figure that out pretty well it's not always going to be exactly the same number of rounds because perhaps people take cards earlier or you know there's potential for more or less cards to come out in a given round but you basically always could predict when the last round is going to be or very close to it so that's just another way that the game gives you more information when it could choose to give you less right less yep. and and that also information kind of clues you into the fact that there's not going to be equal or even necessarily roughly equal numbers of each cards right it's totally possible that six blue cards could just be in those bottom 15 you know and if the at, at last round card was shuffled into the bottom 15 that would potentially smooth things out a little bit more um but i think it's really an interesting the way it works here and i think when you kind of recognize that it can make those decisions feel just a touch more meaningful and less chaotic than they otherwise would. Especially as you're getting down to the lower and lower in the deck and your ability to speculate on what cards might still be out there and the value of cards on the board because it's actual known information goes up dramatically all of a sudden. Yeah, totally. Jake, can we talk about some of the decisions around getting to lay cards into the rows? Because I find that those... Mm -hmm. are some of the most interesting decisions in the game compared to should I take or should I not take? Which, like we just said, because there's so much uncertainty of what might happen in the swings of potential rows, can oftentimes feel like you you don't have that much to go on. Whereas with when you're laying cards out in the rows, you have a lot of information to look at. And what I mean by this is you have open information of every card that every player already has, so, so much of what you're doing in Colorado is you're drawing a card and then you're trying to create rows that every other player, either you're really trying to incentivize a player to take a row, maybe, oh, I really want to get this player out of the round early because we share a color. And if I can get them out of the round, maybe I can build up on that other color if those cards come up and score even more and kind of disincentivize them from going to that color. Or maybe I'm trying to keep things really even. I think there's lots of ways that this little puzzle can be approached that aren't necessarily intuitive right at the start and affect also based on where you're sitting at the table and who's next to you and what colors they're also in. Here's a quick question. Okay. Which part of the game do you think is easier are are the are the decisions more clear to you whether you should take a row or draw a card 
or where you should play a card once you've drawn it? I think that's a tricky question because I think it's it depends. Yeah, there's definitely times where if all of the rows are full, it, it's obviously it's usually an easier decision. I, I'm but answering your question in a poor way. But sometimes you can just draw a card that's like a plus two or or no, I, I, the plus two. That's really difficult because, right, like you want that to wheel. And where do you place it so that it has like the highest likelihood of potentially wheeling to you? Maybe you just put it in the, the least filled row. I think there could be some heuristics around that. Or you draw a card that's like somebody already has four browns and there's one brown in a row and you draw a card that doesn't matter to you, but it hurts mm-hmm. them. You put it with yes. the brown. It's like a no brainer. Right. No, exactly. I, yeah. I think. But when I. Yeah, I find the challenging decisions with placing a lot is like when I fi- find a card I want, like how can I place yes. this yeah. in a way so that it can come back to me and come back to me with like the least damage done to it, right? Yeah, right. With people, and by that you mean people chucking junk that you don't want in with it. Exactly. Totally. Like, can we talk not about my beautiful row? <laughs> yeah, my beautiful green row. And I think that's where a lot of the tension comes from is the fact that those things are decoupled, that you always do have to wait for it to get back to being your turn until you get the choice again. That's what makes this game interesting, right? Way less interesting if you could draw, place, and then take. It's not, it wouldn't have the teeth that it has. Also, can we talk about the plus two value cards just for a minute? Because I'm learning something really interesting, which is that I think you value those cards higher than I do. Yeah, what... I value them very highly. And you value them very highly because there's no downside. They're just always yeah. two points. Whereas every other card in, the, card in the game, depending on the situation, probably has the potential to be a negative value card for you unless it's late game and you already have five in a color and you're not going to have five in other colors. But I find, Jake, they're below average. If you have three colors and you're fully invested in those three colors, a plus two is a below average value card. If you can get those three colors higher, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, obviously, I wouldn't like choose to have a plus two over a card that's more card valuable that to yeah, me. Yeah. yeah. Right. If if I'm choosing between two points and four points, okay, I'm going to take the like four points the every Never time. Mind. Never mind. But I think the thing with the two plus two is like you you want them at they have maybe a little bit of a variable value because yeah, at the beginning game. of the game. What? I was going to say the exact opposite. <laughs> They're more valuable at the beginning of the game where you don't necessarily know what colors you're going to be mm. in. They help to keep you open. Where late game, you're more likely to you know, have a situation where you're. it's much more clear like what different cards are going to be of value to you. Mm. Sure. Right? But the flip side is late game. Maybe there's certain colors. I, it all depends on what your board is. So this is a tough hypothetical, right? But early game... I guess it does keep you open, but there's also the potential that if you take a plus two and you could have taken, say, a green card, that you will inevitably end up in green and that the green card that you didn't take could have been the card that ended up being worth six to you, right? That is a really real possibility because your opportunity cost of taking cards of certain colors is finite in the game. There's only so many cards that you could take. What do you think is better round one? is to take a so say you're you have one green card to start the game would you rather have a row that contains one blue and one gray card or one blue and one plus two card definitely the the latter because okay early game 
I want to stay in as few of colors as possible. Okay. So you're, but it seems like we're on the same page. Then. It seems like it. I thought yeah. what you were saying before, maybe you would take the other side. So, I don't. Very I don't interesting so. segment podcast discussion. <laughs> Jake and I figure out we're on the same page all <laughs> yeah. along. But I do think that there's, I think the plus two cards are a little bit tricky to value, right? Because to your point of within this game, maybe I'm willing to go into certain colors for one card, right? Where if I, so I stay quote unquote open, I take one negative for the chance that I'm going to end up getting way more points in that color. You get the, the plus twos are just flat. They, they don't mm-hmm. represent any significant risk or any significant downside. And sure, I'll take them, but I'm not making a ton of progress towards scoring really high. So if there's a chance that I miss the opportunity to take one of the colors that I should have been in all along um, and instead take a two, that feels pretty bad to me in terms of my potential score. Yeah, but you don't know. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, like, yeah, That's yeah, the, the kind of thing that's where it's like, yeah. right, like, to me, it's not even worth considering like late in the game. It's like, oh, I really should have took that red over that plus two now that I'm sitting here with four reds. But yeah. it's like, how could you have known? Like, what? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. What do Jake, you think you... about wilds, though? Yeah. Because, like, if plus twos are difficult to evaluate for those reasons we're talking about, wilds are not. Wilds are so easy. They're just the best card in the game. But the, the trick with wilds is, is that, okay, if a wild gets drawn early in a round, and it ends up in a row by itself. Oftentimes, I th- I think the right decision can be just take the wild. Like a wild represents so much value uh, that oftentimes you can afford to just take one card in the round if the one card's a wild. I think it'd be very difficult to construct, especially early game scenarios where you would not take a wild. Even late game, I think in most cases, a wild is going to be present a really good value proposition for you like even if you're taking a wild that's plus three points for you and two other cards that's minus three points for you that's probably worth taking just to stop somebody else from getting the wild which would have more negative ramifications i think the interesting thing about the wild for me is that it represents something that's terrible to draw out of the deck like once the wilds are gone you're it fundamentally changes, I think, the calculation for how risky it is to draw a card. Because anytime mm-hmm. you draw a card it's and it's a wild, it's almost certainly not getting back to you. And for that yeah. reason, you know, it's better to have other people draw them, obviously. I don't know. In general, it's it, it seems like drawing cards is good because it allows you the power to, you know, mess people's rows up, potentially put rows together that are beneficial to you. But just hitting those like wilds is almost like a feel bad type of deal, especially because there's only a couple in the deck, right? It's like yeah. two wilds in the whole deck. I think there's three. One tricky thing about this game is I feel like the right time, the the perfect, the optimal decision in terms of taking cards would be you want to take 2.5 cards around. It feels like wilds aside, right? Just like wilds aside. If I could take two and a half cards around, it feels like I'm doing doing pretty well. But the problem is, is that you have to take two cards or three cards. You can't, you can't stop in the middle. And it oftentimes, do you get what I'm saying, Jake? Like Mm -hmm. oftentimes you're faced with the decision of, okay, I could take these two cards, but should I push for a third? And I found that usually in Colorado, you're more likely to win games if you're taking two cards and stopping rather than pushing a third. But that doesn't 
always bear out because there's going to be times when people get lucky. And in those cases, taking three cards, right? If you're the last person around and then you draw the wild, that can be amazing for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does have that interesting tension where like the more cards you get, the better, assuming they're on suit. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. That is the that is uh, the interesting tension created by this scoring. I'm gonna go to board game arena and just look at the uh, like victory scoring thing condition yeah. or whatever. Like, I'm curious about the stats on this. Like, am I drawing more cards on average than the people who win the game the most or often? Less. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah. less. You look it up, and in the background, I'm gonna talk about some heuristics, and you can say if you think you agree or not. Is that okay? Perfect. Okay, so number one heuristic is follow your signposts, which are your opening color. Because you're dealt a card at the start, that's going to guide your whole approach through the game. And you're most likely going to want to be in that color, especially if no one else also started with that color, because you have endowed progress towards scoring a lot of points in that. I think that is fair. Yes. Great. So you don't like, you know... I think people can get in a pitfall here where they're like, I am the blue player because I started with the blue card. Which is not true. Yeah. Which falls into the next heuristic. Oh, okay. Colorado, like most drafting games, is all about staying open. You want to stay, be in the fewest number of colors as possible early on. It's, It's better to take fewer cards of the right colors than more cards of, say, it's better to have three cards of two colors than it is to have four cards of three colors, I think. Just because it allows you to stay open and means that you're less likely to get negative points foisted upon you in the next round if a lot of potential negative points pile up. Mm -hmm. Jake's nodding his head. Okay. We already covered this heuristic. Take the wild. Almost (laughs) always, if you're presented (laughs) with the opportunity to take the wild, take the wild. It, It shouldn't be much of a question. But interestingly, in Colorado, with the way scoring works, there are times where you could be behind, and but you still kind of have to take the wild. There's just times where maybe you've lost the game. Just take the wild. Okay. Venture into as few colors as possible. That goes without saying. Um, taking less is more. And then also value plus twos, but only to an extent, which it sounds like Jake and I both kind of agree on. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Okay, Brendan, I agree with all your heuristics. I've got the stats here. They're not as robust as i would like in fact there's not a stat that just says number of cards taken which i think would sure. be the most interesting In the game thing. overall yeah yeah but here's one interesting one which is that the so the the most so it has like points one for your first color second and third color blah 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 so the points one for first color your biggest collection the winner's average is 19.22 so you're almost always needing to get to six, which I think is 21 points, right? Yep, 21, yeah. So so that's very close to that. So almost always getting to six points is going to propel you, getting to six cards, one color is going to propel you to a victory. The The thing that I find interesting here is that there's a average for whether when you took cards last. So I'm taking cards last 1.5 times per game, right? Meaning all the other rows have been taken and I'm sort of forced into getting one where the winner's average is only 0.89. So less than one time in a game, which I think staying in. Yep. Yeah. So I think that speaks to avoiding the hubris of like, whoa, but it could be even better. Right. And like 
more often taking the you know the value that is present on your turn yeah like i was saying just it's it's probably better in colorado to just take the two cards than push for three yeah. almost always there's more things that are going to hurt you in the deck than are going to help you so if you're behind maybe you have to push but but if you're in the lead you have to play defensively and you mm -hmm. have to just take the two or maybe even just take one one if if you could score six points off one card that that can be enough to push you ahead in the round right especially because people know how good it is to you and that increases the likelihood that they're going to target it with like stuff that's bad for you that you really don't want totally yeah, basically if you're passing there you're counting on the fact that nobody else is going to take it and that people are going to be drawing like wilds and plus twos and can't screw you over or other yep. cards you need and that's usually not a very safe bet i find that colorado i don't think that it's unique to colorado that you should take more risks when you're behind right that's just something that is present in a lot of games that you play um, it's just natural that when you're behind, you have the incentive to play riskier. But I think Colorado makes that point about games much more obvious because it kind of becomes the game. And I've really appreciated playing it online where that's really easily apparent where you have running score totals in a way that when I was playing at the table, I wouldn't take the time to sum everyone's score every single time I make a decision. So it kind of emphasizes this this point about games that just sort of naturally pops because it's so simple so it comes to the forefront so yeah that's great so we move on to zularetto now or do we have final thoughts i see we have a tab for player counts i've played this at all player counts two to five i think it's surprisingly good at two with that variant still fun yeah. and i like it at all player counts i think it changes right uh in how you want to approach the game i think the higher the player count, probably the more you want to play that conservative taking the Defensive. value where it's their approach. Yep. But it's, I think it's fun at all player counts. It's probably, I mean, going to be more chaotic, right? You have less agency and control over the game the higher the player count is. But I mean, it's such a light, quick game that it hardly matters. I really like it at four. I think there, I, I like it at all player counts, but I think the number of, there's something about the math of the four rows and mm -hmm. just the way that cards get pushed out into those, those rows and when people leave around um it just feels like the right mix to me i can't really speak to it beyond that but i like that sometimes in four player games you end up with you it, it's really interesting how rows can fill up in, in colorado and maybe this can be our last point on it but you can have rounds where okay every row gets a card then every row gets another card but you can have also have rounds where okay the first row Everyone throws their first card they flip into that first row. And then you have lots of information of if I don't take something, I must take that that group of cards. Someone will be taking that group of cards. And that really changes the amount of certainty uh, information that you have about what potentially could be your downside. Because if that row is really bad for you, you're trying to get out of the situation where you could take that row. But if there's a row that's good for you that no one else is going to take, well, then you can push and try to see if you can make something better. And I think that I love that the game can push and pull in those directions. And a lot of the skill in Colorado is knowing when to push certain groups of cards together like that to force your opponents into making uh, situation decisions they don't want to have to make. And I don't know. I don't know when I don't get. Do you have a sense for this, Jake? When do you want to pile up a first row? It feels so tactical based on the cards that come out. Yeah, I think it's difficult to say devoid of context, right? Yeah, I think the reason it is likely to happen is because somebody puts a card in there and that's good for somebody like player 
you know, one puts a card in there that whatever, then player two puts a card in there that now together creates like good row for somebody else. And then the third person's like, well, it must stop that. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's kind of like that cumulative hive mind thinking yep. that that leads to it. But yeah, I, I don't know that like saying like, is it tactical to do this earlier? Not devoid of that. Right. Is, is that helpful? Because you're only ever going to be one part of that, right? When you're playing right. your first card, yeah, you know, it doesn't, you can't it has to be, be a thinking group. that it's going into a row. <laughs> yeah, it's a table-based decision for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. All right, okay. let's do Zularetto really quick and let's let the flash floods transition us there. And we're in Zularetto land. Woohoo! It's animals. But it's not colors. It's animals now. And, and there's food stands and, and money. No, no triangular scoring. And pens of various sizes. And breeding. <laughs> and kind barns? of breeding. And, you, okay, so and actions that you can take instead of playing the game. From a menu of cards. Yeah. So, okay. The biggest changes from Colorado to Colorado is that you have three enclosures that you're trying to put the animal tiles that have replaced those cards into and you're trying to fill them up so you're always going to put all your elephants together all of your zebras together all of your flamingos together that's the goal so instead of collecting cards of colors you're collecting animal tiles there's also some tiles that are better than others because they're gendered and if you ever have a male and a female of the same type of animal in the same pen they create a free animal a new animal just pops out of those two and they fill a space. And in this game, there's no... And what uh, if an animal is not a male or a female? That does happen in this game also. <laughs> That's like most of the animals. They're non-breeding game. animals. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. <laughs> this game's weird, Jake. Also, everything you love about the scoring in Colorado is gone. It's just you're trying to fill up pens. And it's like really like weird and confusing. I don't think we should bury the lead here. I like this much less than Colorado. I do not like this yeah that's what i was gonna say like if like colorado is a nine for me and and zularetto might be like a five Five. which i think maps so perfectly into our elegance conversation last week right where like sometimes like the worst of all worlds is an elegant system with like a couple of inelegant things tacked onto it and maybe this there's more than a couple things here but like man does it feel so stark when you have this super awesome core gameplay element, which is the same here, right? On your turn, I mean, it's changed a little bit, but on your turn, mainly you're either like taking a set of animals or you're drawing a tile from the top and putting it into one of four sets yep. or however many players you're playing with. So that's still here, but just like with everything else tacked upon it, it's just kind of like, man, it really does not sing in the same way. And there are still negative points present in this game, but because they're not triangular in nature, the stakes of every decision feel worse. So the the highs are lower and the the lows are also lower. So the game overall just feels really blunted. I, so, yeah. Why? There are just a lot of decisions in this that leave me scratching my head. But none more than the fact that like you have different pens of different sizes. Right. Because that feels like in the worst possible way, it's punishing players for the inherent 
randomness in the game. Like you can't know how many pandas are going to come out. So when you're taking a panda in your first round, do you put it in the pen with six, five or four free spaces? And one of those is going to be right, but it's like literally, you know, impossible to say. So I don't know. For me, that's just kind of like it's an innovation, a change of the system that could have been done in Colorado. But like the the impact of it for me is only negative play experience. Yeah. And there is a mechanism to kind of deal with the question that Jake is posing because you can swap all of your animals of a certain type out of a given pen into your barn. But there's also a mechanism where you can expand your whole zoo, which is really good if you could potentially fill it up even a little bit. So what you are able to do with your money most benefits the player who gets lucky in making the right decision of where they put their animals early on. Yeah, I kind of is hate, also what Jake's getting at. I yeah, think. and I kind of hate how the actions work, where it's like you do that instead of your like normal game Having action to draw. Yeah, right. Because I think that's one of the, like the you know fun sort of Kinesia esque elements of Colorado, where it's like sometimes you just wish, oh, I wish I could do nothing. Right, I would yeah. love to just pass here and. But I can't. So now I, that that's interesting. And I have this restriction where I have to make a choice. And now in Zuloretto, if you have money, you could just like sort of pass. pass. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, and that I guess that is increases the tactical gameplay. But I think it diminishes again that core loop that I found yeah. so fun in Colorado. To me, if Colorado is a delicious burger in a, in a way Zularetto feels like a delicious burger smothered in clam chowder. Yeah, that's not yeah, bad. It, it just like takes all these management decisions and dumps them on top of the game that don't really bring a lot because the game doesn't want to make too much of the game about them. The game kind of mostly wants to be about this really novel drafting mechanism that leads to interesting decisions. So it just ends up muddled and there's too much fighting in terms of what's going on and it's not really fully exploring and it yeah, it takes out that novel scoring system. It just, it weakens the decision space yeah. in a way that's really frustrating. I think the scoring system is my favorite part of Colorado. I yep. think that is like not just the triangular scoring, but the triangular scoring where you're only Positive scoring your three negative. best suits, yep. right? That I think is a stroke of genius. So, you know, obviously I'm not going to like removing that in place of something else that doesn't work as well. But man, the scoring really is onerous here too. It's, you know, I think I would say very inelegant where you have all of your pens have different possible point awards based on th- that are could be worth one of two, one of three things. They could either be worth like the most value, the like less good version or zero, depending if you've completely filled up your pen, have one fewer than filled up or less animals than that. That would be a zero. But if you add a like one of the little stalls that come up to like a, a con, I don't know, a ticket booth or there's a few different types or a food vendor. If you add one of those into it, then that like ups everything by one, right? Like you can then get the full value if you have one empty space. And then also the vending booths are worth two points each for each different type you have, but not the same ones. And it's just like, why? Why are we doing any of this? It makes, yeah. you know, it's just really surprising to me that this could come out of the sort of head of the designer who did Colorado. But I mean, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't really understand 
the the thought process behind it. The whole time we were playing Zularetto, I just thought to myself, wow, I'd really rather play King Domino or Coloretto. Yeah. And it's who not do you think King... who do you think this is for though, right? Like what do you think like the design goal, like if you were to guess behind this innovation? And I, I think Zularetto might be you know, more popular or, or like people seem to love them both. Like even in our discord, right? Yeah. There's sort of people that like Zularetto and people who like Coloretto. My instinct says that Zularetto was an attempt to take a game that felt like a filler game and to make it more of a family game, game of the night, a game you could put down and have it fill a whole hour, you know, while you were playing through. And I hope and not. it's built on this game an that hour? you like. An hour? It feels whole, long for Zularetto. 45 minutes. You think so? I, you know, who do you think it's for, Jake? Yeah, I think like, it's a great question. Thanks for asking. <laughs> Perhaps it is sort of just added complexity for complexity's sake. And I think some people think about the Board Game Geek weight scale. And they're like, I like, I like games that are in this range that's like slightly higher. So perhaps, you know, those folks would find this more appealing than the more stripped down version of it, just because, you know, you have more rules and systems to grapple with. And I, I do think there are people who enjoy that sort of for, for that sake alone. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's I just not for me. If you'd like a heavier Colorado, have you ever considered checking out Kanagawa? which is basically like Catholoretto because it takes this core mechanism and it doesn't allow you to place, uh, you don't pick where you place cards, but you have the similar mechanism of rows filling up with cards as the game goes on. And it adds these really interesting um, scoring options of pushing your luck around what goals you're going for. What do you think, Jake? Yeah, I love that. I hadn't thought about Kanagawa in those terms, but I think that is a perfect recommendation for the step up from Coloretto. Great. Do, do you have any other thoughts on Zularetto? I just want to talk about Coloretto. <laughs> Let's do our final thoughts on Coloretto and wrap up here. Both of us has gushed a lot on this podcast about how great this game is. And I think for me, I found this game really inspiring creatively. I sort of stole some of the mechanisms wholesale that I've been put into a little prototype that I've been playing around with. So that was cool. You know, it, yeah. So it truly inspired me. And I think also, not to say too much on this is it helped me sort of to reevaluate what games I should be seeking out to play more. I think Mm. when I came into this hobby, I had, you know, I played pandemic and then I got recommended ticket to ride. And those are sort of my entry gateway games for me. And then when I got past the gateway, I started I was like, okay, now I'm going to try Castles of Burgundy and Blood Rage and like these bigger games. And like, I'm ready for those fuller experiences now. And there are a lot of these like incredible light gateway games out there that I think for a long time, because they weren't my gateway, I just thought I don't really have a place for them or I don't need to go back and revisit uh, these sort of light filler games of old. But I'm so glad I did check out Coloretto you know, thanks to it being on board game arena and folks recommending it to me because I mean, it's just great. And it makes me want to continue to, to seek out more of these types of light gateway filler games, which it turns out are some of my favorite types of games to play and explore. And I think 
you know, create incredibly refined and nuanced decision space in a slant view rules, scant view yeah. rules. So yeah, that's kind of my key takeaways from this one. I'm really glad we tried to play both the games, Jake, I will say, because based on what you just said, it's so interesting that Colorado is by far the lighter game out of the pair of these two games. But it is the fuller game in terms of the vividness of experience and decision space, for me at least. There's more I can sink my teeth into, and when I do, it feels more meaningful, and I have more fun with it. I think that one thing that's exciting for me about Colorado is I've primarily played this game just with the basic triangular scoring. It's what we spent most of the episode talking about. All of it. I totally forgot. Yeah. It gave it... I think it was important we did that, because I think when people think of Colorado, that's what they think of, and... It's so there's so little in this game that if we tried to veer into talking about the advanced scoring too much, it would have blended half of the things that we would have said might not have ended up feeling true and resonating. But there is an advanced scoring. um, There are advanced scoring rules that make it a little bit more such that you want lots of cards, but only three or four copies of a card. I believe you don't want to push too far. And I think that it's interesting that the game and the system can support these sort of varied rules and that there's a whole nother puzzle waiting, even if you feel like the triangular scoring is played out. So I'm excited to try that. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely going to do that. And maybe in our year end, when we look back at games, can touch on if that was a really fun way to play or not. But I think that Colorado is this perfect example of how less can be more. And it's also beautiful because you can play Colorado maybe more than any game we've ever covered on the show outside of potential colorblindness issues, um, which there's little ways that you could probably account for that. You could play with anyone. But from a rules system level, this is a this is a unifying game of a collection, potentially. It's just perfect for any situation. Small, I don't know, it's great. Yeah. I, I really love Colorado. I'm so glad I played it. I think if you've never played Colorado and you're listening, you should play it. It's a great game. Definitely one I'm going to be seeking out to pick up for my collection, which is certainly not something we always say at the end of an episode of Decision Space. But here we are at the end. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode on Colorado and a little bit there about Zularetto. As always, if you want to continue this discussion, there will be ongoing discussion about this and everything else we talk about on this show in our Discord. You can find a link to that in the description of this podcast episode. Yeah, and... I really look forward to covering Barrage in a few weeks from now. And before that, we're going to have a series of topical conversations that will surely be exciting. So come back. We're, thank you for making it this far. Yeah. And thanks, as always, to Hembry for intro and outro music. Bye.